Praise God. Praise God. Yes, Brother Bass, I am ready to get this over with. If you would open your Bible to the writing of Psalms number 42. Well, I have a lot of emotions this morning. My primary emotion is that, <clears throat> and I say this sincerely without one thread of sarcasm or self-abasement, <clears throat> I will disappoint some of you this morning in the simplicity of what I'm going to uh, talk about. I have not felt a strong, compelling drive to preach uh, in this setting the way that we normally associate in our mindset of, of preaching. I am drawing from past reference points in my own life that I have been in situations and occasions, one just a few months ago, where a man went to the pulpit and he, he really didn't raise his voice a lot. But he, I'm not saying I'm going to do this today, I'm telling what I feel. He never raised his voice but once or twice, but he, it was like taking a scalpel and he just worked me over and, and I, I carried that beyond the meeting. So my intent today is to reach beyond today. I'm not just reaching for a momentary response, and I'm not saying that for any reason other than that's what I feel. What I have to say is so simple, so basic, so elementary, but I'm trying to reach beyond today in the hearts of people that are here today. And uh, what I have to talk about is just so, so simple, so simple. Appreciate all the good things that have happened in this meeting. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I want to say about a hundred opening comments here, but I don't want to intrude on, on any more time than I I have to. I want to say thank you again to Brother and Sister Bass and their family, their children, and this church for hosting this meeting. Thanks for letting me come. I only have one complaint, and that is all of this fat-free food that we have been served. I, I feel like I haven't got enough nourishment since I've been here, and surely you understand that's facetious. I appreciate the word of the Lord that I've heard from each and every man. I've been changed, challenged. I mean that. Every man has challenged my heart, and I'm thankful for that. Thankful for my good friend preaching last night, Brother Wilson. We have a lot of uh, endearing phrases that we use for Brother Wilson, like Teddy Bear and Winnie the Pooh, and, you know, we a lot of affectionate things that we say about brother he, he's he's kind of like dr jekyll and mr hyde if you you saw it last night you probably didn't really categorize it or recognize it but did you see how he would ambulate along and he would just kind of use those big words and you're tripping over what he's saying and you're trying to lock into what he's saying and he's he's so profound and then all of a sudden along comes dr jekyll and he just and all of a sudden he just pure holy ghost apostolic preacher just then he packs off and he's Winnie the Pooh again and he's kind of <laughs> didn't you see that last night can you recognize what I was it's incredible it's incredible it's like wait no you got to watch close because he, he he's like a superhero he can he can take his disguise off so quickly and show you that red s superman so quick it just and then, then he's back again praise God I have not yet def discern which is the real Nate Wilson. I wish my wife was here. She can say things better than, than I. And, and uh, she, she would say about his message last night, said it was like watching a master paint a picture. It was just beautiful. It was artistic in its completion. And it's, uh, I am telling you that message last night lacked nothing to be complete not in any sense of the word. I am a better man for hearing all of the messages and last night inclusive, and I mean that sincerely. Praise God. The only part I 
feel like I need to talk to him about is that little phrase of that little segment in there when he got to doing that Pentecostal cussing, you know, that saying them words. I don't know what those words were, but uh, I need to get by the tape and hear those words, Brother Wilson. Would you help me learn those words so that when I want to express myself more adequately, I can... Praise God. Praise God. It's fun living for God. Yes, it is. It's the best life there is. And if you're weary in this life, you need to find something very soon to recharge your battery. I want to somehow say some things today that will challenge you. And I mean that not in the sense of just spiritually, but also intellectually. Not that I'm capable, but I'm going to try. Your intelligence, they tell us, is is a remarkable thing. It is referred to as fluid intelligence when you are young, and as you progress in age, it becomes progressively crystallized. And that's why children are more capable of learning things than once you get a little further in life. Uh, Those of you that have reached even uh, early adulthood would find it difficult to learn a second language unless you are particularly gifted in that area. But a child has no uh, problem with that. It can learn a language by playing with the kids down the block. And the reason for that is your intelligence is fluid at the beginning of life. And as you progress through, it crystallizes. And you are not as readily uh, capable of adopting new things and grasping new ideas. And your schemas, schemas are your preformed thoughts and ideas about things. Your schemas are set, and it's hard to change you, and it's hard to get you to see it a little differently. And I've made up my mind that I don't want to go through life with my intelligence crystallized. I don't want to just hear the same things over and over and over and repetitious things. I want a man to go to the pulpit and talk to my heart. I want to be challenged. I want to see new vistas. I want to see things that I have never seen before. I want to be able to hope for things that I never dreamed were possible before. I don't want to live my life feeling like I have reached the apex of it. And I just, and I don't mean this wrongly, just go find some hobby somewhere and just exist until Jesus comes. I want something to get a hold of me that says there are places we've never been. There are things we have never felt. There are things that have never been preached. There are glories that have never been experienced. And God somehow help us to not be content to just sit back and and accept the status quo. But somehow challenge ourselves in the Holy Ghost until there are new places, ideas, dimensions. Chapter 42. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Single verse from 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We do not see him yet. My contribution to this day of your life is real simple today. I'm going to talk about two very elementary things. I'm going to talk about sight and hunger. Sight and hunger. Father, we ask you to bless this congregation. Help me to communicate what I'm feeling inside. God, reach beyond this day. Help us to take this with us, God, into our futures. The name of the Lord, I pray. I glorify you today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you so kindly. Sight and hunger. I am convinced from my perspective that these two things are 
a very critical, if not all-encompassing, when it comes to the subject of having a real move of God or having a revival. Um, I think all of us today could could um, stop and name men that that astound us in that we look at them and we are hard-pressed to identify the components that would make them successful. When we look at them, we think, you know what, he doesn't look, act, or sound like a man that would be very successful. But he has the ability to build a church and gather people to him and many times have a large congregation. Have you ever seen anyone in your life like that that you wondered what their what their secret was? Anybody? Okay. I certainly have. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have seen people that that I thought, surely this person has all the necessary equipment. This person will succeed. They, they will have a large congregation. And as they journey through life, it seems that they are never capable of gathering more than just a few folks together. And that sometimes is confusing. And I'm going to submit to you today that at least part of that answer is if a man can see and if a man is hungry, I believe those are the primary components to his having a move of God and people being added to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some men can see, but they are not truly hungry, and therefore they don't complete the scenario. Other men are very hungry. They, they want God. They're sincere. They're willing to try any number of programs. They're willing to dabble in any number of efforts to, to try to have a move of God and to try to get people uh, gathered together in what we would call a local assembly. But they can't really see, and, and they don't have the ability to look into uh, the spiritual realm, and so they're floundering, and they're frustrated, and they want it, and they're hungry for it, and they're willing to pay the price, but somehow or other they just can't truly see it. But I'm convinced today that whether you are a pastor or an evangelist or in the ministry, or whether you're here today as, as someone that attends a local church, and thank God for faithful saints, and I mean that sincerely, thank God for you. If that's your walk with God and that's the slot that God has put you in, I think it's still important for you to understand if I can see it and if I can hunger for it, it's possible in God. And that's where I want to reach beyond today. I don't want to just give you something that excites you and you say, praise God, that really tasted good for the moment. But as you go into next week and next month and six months from now, I hope something can be born in your heart today that you have confidence that, first of all, I've got to be able to see it. If I can see it somehow in the Spirit, if I can somehow look out beyond the horizons of where I am right now, and then you can have the hunger to go after that. And you can say, God, I am... I'm hungry for this. I am not willing to just sit back and accept the status quo. And if you can see it and you can hunger for it, I am preaching to you today, you can do some things for God. As I have told you in my personal life, I am not satisfied to just, uh, I'm not satisfied without knowing some things. I, I'm, I'm going to mention a couple of things that, that might be uh, criticized here today, and it's okay because I've crossed that bridge and I'm comfortable with myself, and that's ultimately where you have to get in life. But I, I decided that I would take some classes at university because there were some things I wanted to know. And I realize everybody might not want to do that. In fact, probably most people already know it. But I didn't and wanted to, and so I took a particular class uh, because it was so hard for me in high school I decided that I would go back and take it at the university level and see if I could take the class and literally see if I could pass the class. And so I took a class on biology. And I didn't um, want to take the regular biology because I wasn't interested in cutting frogs up and I didn't want to dissect little animals. And so I took another one. It's called Biology 3. And, and it's a natural history approach to biology. And I, I took it because I, I felt challenged. And I, as I've said, I don't want my mind and my intelligence to crystallize and, and and, and not expand, and, and there's just things I want to learn. And so in this class, there was 
a lot of things that they taught. They dabbled a little bit in chemistry and the, and the elements and the nuclear composition of, of various uh, elements. And we had to learn that little chart to put on the wall with all the numbers and how to diagram atoms and had to learn all about covalent bonds and hydrogen bonds and all that stuff and got through that. And then we had to learn about life and we had to learn about uh, different cells and, you know, the involvement of life as they, as they claim and prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells and all that stuff. And we went through life and different kinds of flowers, monocots and dicots and different kinds of trees and deciduous and, and coniferous and all, you know, and, and it helped me. And there's a fellow by the name of Merriman and he identified different zones. And so in the area that I live, the part that I enjoyed is we went on field trips and for the first time in my life I walked around and I understood the difference of trees and what trees were in what families. And they taught us how to judge the plants and if you see this plant you know you're at this elevation and you're in a certain uh, area of, of, of elevation and, and there are zones that you get into and then we had to identify plants and trees and, and uh, particular animals that are, are there and I'd lived there all my life born and raised in California other than the time that I traveled evangelizing and yet and that here I am 42 years old and I didn't know some of that stuff and so it was interesting to me and that might not be something that, that you think is necessary and probably isn't but I enjoyed that it challenged me and and, and and that was just something I learned. But in the course of that class, there was a particular day, and the professor was basically a academic. He stayed right on his notes. He didn't deviate a lot. I mean, we went on past those things that I mentioned to you and talked about ozone layers and greenhouse effect and stuff that you read in the paper and ecology and evolution and all that. It was quite a wide-ranging class. But he, he stayed right on his notes. But one day he told a little story that was so good, and I want to relate that story to you today simply because I enjoyed the story, and for me it had a spiritual application. It answered some frustrating things in my life that I had experienced that I'm believing today that some of you also uh, experience. When I was a boy growing up, I, I had the ordinary pet. You know, I had a dog, and the dog's name was King. And, and <laughs> it's not very imaginative, but that's what we called him. And he was just a mongrel. He, he w had no papers. We were poor folk. We didn't have hybrid dogs. Uh, you know, our, our dogs were just mongrels, and they fought and, and scrapped with the dogs next door. And they had a big white boxer next door. His name was Snowball. And King and Snowball would always fight. And, and we would let the fight go on as long as King was winning and then when Snowball started winning we would get the water hose and make him quit fighting because we of course liked our dog and and we had normal pets one time we caught an owl out in the field and and they had a damaged wing wounded and and we raised that back to life but you know I was just a boy and we just had regular pets and I had a dog and 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 later on in life I saved my money and worked out in the fields and bought a little paint mare and that was somewhat of a pet it was pretty crazy horse wouldn't stop and I finally traded it off and bought a car but none of the girls wanted to go out with me and ride my horse so I Decided I would buy a car, but I just had regular pets, you know. And some of the city slickers I went to school with, they had these exotic pets, you know. They had snakes and 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 uh, pythons, and they had iguanas that would get six feet long, and they're green and ugly, look like some kind of prehistoric thing. And 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 some of them had fish and bowls and birds. And went over to somebody's house the other day, and they were showing me their bird, and they they said, "Brother Bo, this is our pet." And I said, "Oh, that's a nice bird. What kind is it?" And it was a uh, uh, I don't know, something, I can't even remember the name of the bird, but they said, watch, it'll get on your finger, and it got on my, f man, I was really like, I was petting it, and pretty soon it drank out of my coffee cup, and I was enjoying this little bird, and it got up on my shoulder, and, and it was nipping at my ear, and, and, and I was just enjoying it, and pretty soon they said, oh, just a minute, Brother Bo, and they went and got a little paper towel and started wiping off my, <laughs> I said, I don't want a bird for a pet, I, so, <laughs> bird wanted to buy my suit he left a deposit on it praise God <laughs> but in all of my travels I never knew anyone that had for a pet an octopus does anybody know anybody that ever had an octopus for a pet oh he, he knows one okay octopuses are are, are are pretty interesting things and this is what happened in that biology class he he got to telling us a story that occurred in in their lab they had some uh, research uh, animals and some things that they were doing research on, and so they had them in aquariums around the lab, and they had an octopus in, in one aquarium on, on a center table, and then they had other ones around the outside edge. And, and uh, they didn't have that octopus very long until they came in one morning, and, and they noticed that one of their aquariums was empty, and there was water all over the floor. And they, 
they thought, what's going on here? What happened here? And so this kept happening. They would, they would restock their supply of things they were going to do experiments on, and they would come back the next morning, and everything was the same. Octopus is in his tank, and everybody's there except one tank would be empty, and there'd be water all over the floor. And so they thought to themselves, we're going to turn the lights out and act like we go home, and we're going to see what happens. And they were quite shocked. They did, and they turned out the lights, and they watched that octopus came out of its... Uh, aquarium down the side of the table across the floor left his slime and water across the floor crawled up to where he could see and he looked around and saw what he wanted and found something to eat he crawled in that tank and he just ate up whatever was in that tank and then like a good little boy he crawled out of the tank back down across the floor left another little trail of slippery stuff and water and got back in his tank and he was a happy camper he, he just they couldn't believe it they said this is incredible. This octopus. So they started started doing intelligence tests on, on an octopus. Makes me want to go back and be a boy again and have an octopus for a pet. But they found out they're very intelligent. They put a, they put a lobster in a... Uh, you say, what's this got? To, I, I, I do have a point. I know it looks like I'm rambling on here. But I'll, I'll be Dr. Jekyll in just a minute, Mr. Hyde. Praise God. And they put this lobster in a little glass container with a hole in the end of the stopper, and they dropped it in the octopus tank. And he fumbled around with that, and they timed him. It took him eight minutes. But he finally figured it out. He pulled that stopper off and ate that lobster. He, was, he, he figured it out. So they, they said, let's try this again. They dropped another one in there. This time it took him five minutes. They dropped a third one in. It took him three minutes. When they dropped the fourth one in, he didn't even hesitate. He popped the top and downed it. Just boom. And he went. And they found out that octopus have a very highly intelligent brain that shocked them but these guys doing this laboratory experiment they said well now this is all great that we have this smart octopus and he's eating up all our all of our experimental stuff here but but we got to put a stop to this so they had a little grate uh, uh, a metal thing that they put on top of the aquariums to keep things from falling in and stuff and so they laid that on top of the aquarium and they thought that'll take care of that the octopus won't be able to get in here and so they went and locked the door and went home when they came back the next day lo and behold one of the aquariums was empty and they said, now, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. These grates go on here. They snap down. We know this octopus is not smart enough to undo these catches and take this grate off. So what's going on here? So they decided to watch again. Turned out the light, put the grate on, and locked it down. And so here comes the octopus. He crawls out of his aquarium, down, across the floor, and he comes up. And they, they saw an amazing phenomenon. They found out that an octopus, because he has no internal skeleton, that if his eye could fit through the hole of the grate, he would eventually get his whole body through that grate. He would squirm and elongate himself and manipulate himself until he squeezed his entire body through an opening that his eye would fit. Eat his content eat everything in there, work his way back out, out the grate, down the side, cross the floor, and there he was. And when I sat there, now you may think this is totally out, but I sat there that day and some things clicked in my heart spiritually. And I said, you know what? There is an application here spiritually that there are some things that I believe that if I could see them, truly see them that wherever my eye could go I believe if somehow I had enough hunger I could follow that eye spiritually and what has happened in the past in my life and I'm kind of confessing here, is I've had the hunger to do it. I've had the desire to do it. I've been willing to fast and pray and read and study and go to meetings. But it just seemed like there were places I just couldn't go. It was like I could not get there. And it was like God was saying to me, one of the things that you have to be able to do is see. You have got to be able to see things that are not there. You have got to be able to reach into a dimension. That's why the Bible says faith is the evidence of things not 
seen. It is the evidence of things not seen. That's why a man uh, can have a church and sometimes you look at it and say, how in the world can he get so many people together? Somehow he's got the ability to see in an area that you and I can't always see. And it was like God was speaking to me personally and saying there is room in the kingdom of God that if you can see it and you're hungry enough for it, you can get there. But first of all, you've got to see it. There's got to be sight on your part. You can't sit around and just say it'll never happen. And you can't sit around and say nobody wants the message and nobody wants the gospel. There's got to be a certain element of you, right-handed brain or whatever it is, that dreams and says there's greater things than I've ever done before. I'm not content to just live my life and just have a little hobby and have a little church and just do this and do that. God, deliver us today from that. Let there be something in us that says I want to see it, God, the way you want me to see it. I want to be able to see out there somewhere God let me see it let me see it let me see it a few weeks ago I guess it's been a couple of months now I I told brother Wilson about this I was sitting at home one Saturday reading the paper and I noticed that in a park not far from me they were having the state cross-country championships now I don't go to ball games and never I don't do all that stuff so don't don't shoot at me here but this is just a public event where people are running. And, and I knew it was at this park, and I thought, you know, I've got a few hours here. I wanted to go out and enjoy the sunshine. It was, it was late in the fall and had been cold and foggy, and the sun was shining. And I thought, I'm just going to drive out there and watch him run. And uh, I don't know much about cross country. Never did it in school. Uh, before I got saved, I played other sports and lettered in four sports. But, but cross country, I never ran. And so, but I went out there. And, and I got to asking around, just talking to folks, and I drove my pickup out and sat on the tailgate and drank coffee and just watched it. And it was just an enjoyable morning, spent a couple hours there. And, and these were the state championships. And there were 26 teams there, junior colleges from around California. So these were the cream of the crop. These were the best runners in the state of California for the cross-country event. And I watched them, and there was about 300 runners. All of them had been winners and champions from around the state. So these were the best. And I, 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 like I said, I don't know much about it, but I, I watched them, and, and they started. And I watched their start. 300 runners come down there like a marathon, and, and then they ran. And, and, and there's a place you could walk over to and watch them at the halfway mark and watch back and watch, come back and watch the finish. And so I did. And, and uh, at the halfway mark, I was quite surprised because obviously they wore uniforms, and the uniforms were the same, kind of like, you know, these engaged people coordinate their clothes. You, know, you can tell on whose team and... <laughs> But anyway, I could tell. And so at the halfway point, I was watching them come through, and some had red and yellow and, you know, green, different uniforms. And, and the first runner through was, was from one particular school, and, and then the second runner through was from the same school, and then the third runner through, and then the fourth runner through, and that shocked me. And I, I asked somebody, I said, oh, are four of those people from the same team? And they said, yeah, yeah, they're all from Riverside, is what they said. Well, that kind of, I thought that was pretty incredible, but they went on and ran there four miles, and, and I was waiting at the finish line to see it, and then I was going to go. And as they, as these runners came in, and as they made their crossing the finish line, the first runner was from Riverside, and that, that meant that he was the winner of the race. And the other runner right next to him was about an arm's length behind, and they were all out. They were trying to beat each other, was also from Riverside. And the third runner was from Riverside. And I was just standing there with my mouth open. I thought, surely this doesn't happen all of the time. If you've got 300 champions from around the state, surely it's, it's an incredible thing to have one in the top ten, much less two. But the first runner was from Riverside. The second runner was from Riverside. The third runner was from Riverside. And the fourth runner was from Riverside. So out of 300 champions, the first four finishes were on the same team. I was absolutely stunned. And so I, I just thought, well, they won. And I started to walk off, and there were two ladies standing there talking in warm-up suits, obviously women's coaches of some kind for one of the ladies' teams that had run earlier. And I heard one of them say, not yet. And that kind of caught my ear. And I, I stopped for just a moment. I wasn't talking, but I, I was listening. And, and she said, oh, no, they haven't won yet. And the other one said, but, but they won the first four slots. And she said, no, not yet. They've got another runner, and it depends on where he finishes. And, and so I stopped and asked the lady. I said, ma'am, are you telling me that Riverside may not win this match, even though they had first place, second place, third place, and fourth place? She said, absolutely. She said, this is a team event. 
And she said, there is one more runner. You have to have five to compete in this event. You have to have five runners to win as a team. And she said, that one runner, wherever he is, he can finish far enough back that they will lose this match. And so the entire crowd, the expectation of looking for that one runner with that red slash across his jersey that said RCC, Riverside City College. And and when he came into view, he, he was way back down the line. He was about number 65, I think it was, back down the line. But when he came trudging across that line, everybody started cheering him on and, 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 and saying, come on, come on, you can make it. And what that did for me was this. It made me realize that all of my successes in life and all of my failures in life are not singularly attached to me. And, and sometimes we get to thinking, you know what, my contribution is not all that important or I'm the only one that matters. You, you, you can get in a vein as a pastor that says, if I'm where I need to be, this church will have a revival. I'm here to tell you it's not quite always that way. And then you can get on the other end and say, well, it doesn't really matter if the saints get to praying and fasting. It really doesn't matter if I'm spiritual or not. And I'm here to tell you that's not true either. I'm here to tell you that it's a very finely tuned thing when you get to talking about revival in a move of God, that the contribution of every single person involved comes into play. And one person can drag you back or disqualify you. There are so many, and I don't have time to preach about them all today, but there are so many many components of revival that if you're going to have it happen in your church it is a multifaceted thing you've got to be right you've got to be spiritual you've got to be hungry but you've got to get your church to the place where they pray and they understand the spiritual dynamics and they're willing to worship and they're willing to fast and they're willing to pray I'm telling you it's a multifaceted thing but I do believe it all boils down to seeing it and wanting it to looking down the road and saying I'm telling you we can have it in the Holy Ghost and I'm hungry for it and I'm I want it in my church. I want the Holy Ghost to have its way. And I want a move of God. I believe that. I believe that. Henry Ford, the magnet, automobile magnet and tycoon said this. He said, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. You're right. There's a lot of truth in that when it comes to spiritual application. If you're sitting there saying we can't have a revival because we don't have a good evangelist. If you're sitting there saying we, don't, we can't have a revival because we have church trouble. We can't have a revival because we don't have enough finances. We can't have a revival because we don't have the building to draw the crowd. If you've got all those kinds of mindsets, I'm here to tell you, you are absolutely right, sir. You will not have revival. But if you're on the other end of the spectrum said our building may not be the best in town, our people may not be the highest socialites there are in town, but we still serve a God that says we can have it. And I I see it and I want it and I'm hungry for it. I'm telling you, you can, you can have revival if you leave this building today. I hope there's deeply embedded in your spirit somewhere the knowledge that I can see it and I'm hungry for it and I will let God use me for the kingdom of God. Don't give me that limitation business. Don't give me that limitation business. I could take you to a church in another state from here. The man has a third grade education. He stutters so bad that, he, that it's embarrassing to hear him try to preach. I'm telling you, you would look at him and say, the man will never get anything done. But I'm telling you, he's got over 200 people in his church. He's got doctors and lawyers, highly educated people in his church. Just built a brand new building and it's paid for, paid cash when he built it. And the man, you, to hear him talk and to look at him and to speak to him one-on-one, you'd think, boy, he, he, he would never get more than a half a dozen people assembled together but there's something inside him he can see it and he's hungry for it and he refuses to let God uh, uh, not do the work because he is not going to limit God by his own inability I'm here to tell somebody today quit looking yourself in the mirror and saying I'll never be what somebody else is why don't you look for it why don't you get your eye on it today you can go where your eye will take you if you're hungry for it Oh, let's lift our hands right now and ask God to help us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Stupid little things, sometimes they help me though. It's a hockey player I read about, a fellow by the name of Wayne Gretzky. Made a simple little statement I have not forgotten. He said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. You miss 100% of the shots 
you never take. And if you want to sit back and fold your hands and say, it's just not for us today, bless God, you go right ahead, sir. But I have in my heart a hunger for some things from God. I have in my heart a hunger today to see some things in God. This 42nd Psalm to me epitomizes more than any other place in the Bible that I could recollect or call to memory this morning. I'm not trying to impress you today. I, I really didn't intend to preach. I just, all of this meeting, I just felt like I don't have anything to say. And this morning I woke up and I was laying in bed and I thought, you know, I'm just going to try to get up there and talk to them a few moments about sight and hunger. Seeing it and being hungry for it. In Psalm 42, if you'll notice, and I don't usually read these parts of it, but in my Bible, it says Psalm 42. And right under that, it says, to the chief musician. Does your Bible say that? Is that in your Bible? Anybody? Hold your hand up if it's in your Bible. See, I don't usually read that part. But here a while back, I saw that. It said, to the chief musician. So I did a little research on Psalm 42. And there were several things that, that caught my attention. First of all, Psalms is divided into five segments. And they are reputed to be by rabbinical tradition, the rabbis that the book of Psalms is divided into five categories in completion to the law. The law had five books. And the law was God's gift to man, 602 laws on how to live. And the writing of the Psalms, according to rabbinical divisions, were five books of gratitude and thankfulness back to God from mankind. They were the man's answer to the law. And the divisions were, volume one was... 1 through 41, volume 2 was 42 through 72, volume 3 was 73 through 89, volume 4, 90 through 106, and volume 5, 107 through 150. So this particular verse would have been the opening statement from the second book of the Psalms as Israel related to Jehovah. And in this particular psalm, he said in writing, and I believe David would be the author. That's contestable, but let's assume here for a moment that he is. He said, I want my song written, and then I want it sung, and I want it sung by the chief musician. There were three renowned musicians in Israel of this era, and he said, I want it to be the chief, even of the three, and he calls him by name. David was saying is, what I am about to say is of such importance and such magnitude that I don't want somebody missing the key. I don't want somebody hitting the wrong chord. I want it to be perfect. All of us understand the value of music and the talent that people like Sister Val and Brother Steve have and Brother Tim and others that are playing. It's incredible the value of music when it comes to serving God demonstrated by Elisha when he said, bring me a minstrel. I need to feel God. Bring me a minstrel. All of us could attest to the value of music and worship and praise. I believe it will be in heaven. I believe when we get to heaven, there will be music and there will be singing and there will be glory and there will be praise and there will be worship. I think the devil hates our worship and he hates our music because that's where he was talented in and he no longer has that anymore and he knows that we have we have usurped that place in his in his downfall and so he wants to invade our music and he wants to cause problems in our music departments and we guard that because we realize the value of it and David was saying what I have to say is so important and it's so valuable. I want somebody to play it that knows what they're doing. I want them to be able to play it in any key. I want them to know what chords go together. I want them to understand an augmented and a diminished. I don't want them to have to flounder around and turn to somebody and say, what chord did he hit? He said, I want the best that we've got in Israel because what I have to say is so valuable that I want it to be perfect when somebody says it to God. And then he said, not only do I want it to be to the chief musician, but I want it to be sung by the sons of Korah. If you'll study the story, and I'm just going to encapsulate this today, I could preach a long time just on the sons of Korah. But if you'll study the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram back in the book of Numbers, along about chapter 14, you'll find out that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were the princes that withstood Moses and said, you take too much on yourself. Moses said, okay, you bring your censors and come out tomorrow and we'll find out whose side God's on. And if you read the story carefully, 
Korah, Dathan, and Abiram came out. And the Bible is very explicit. I have the scriptural references. I can give them to you if you're interested. Very explicit on this. Dathan and Abiram's family perished with them. But Korah's family perished not. It was like Korah fell, Dathan fell, Abiram fell, Dathan and Abiram's family fell. But the Bible plainly says the sons of Korah perished not. If you'll track them through the Scripture, and this is a very beautiful eulogy to their life and their tribe. Uh, if you'll track them down through the Scripture, you'll find that they became mighty warriors for God. They were there when David did his, his exploits. They were there when he went after Ziglag. And they were there noted as warriors in the Scripture. But there was something in them that said, you know what? We can fight and we are capable warriors, but we are so thankful for our deliverance. We are so, so thankful that God did not destroy us with our other people that Dathan and Abiram that the that the the writers of of commentaries say that they addicted themselves to sacred music and the overtone of Korah in the Bible and his sons is always singers in the temple they are the most renowned vocalist in Israel when they wanted it to be sung to perfection when they wanted every nuance in the song and everything to be exactly perfect they said get the sons of Korah and I believe it went deeper than a music conference. I believe it went deeper than just a natural ability. There's nothing to infer that they were gifted above others. But it was simply they had deep inside them the knowledge that I don't even deserve to be here. I am not worthy to sing this song. I should have perished with all the others. But God delivered me. And there was a note and a nuance and a fiber of their song that others did not have. And it was because of their deliverance. I'm telling you there is a difference in Holy Ghost singing and Holy Ghost worship. There is a difference when somebody's just performing and going through the ritual. There is a difference that you can feel when somebody's got it down inside them. Oh, give me Holy Ghost singing. I don't want the modern productions that people have today. Give me somebody that knows what it is to be delivered. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just think last night. Brother Copeland stood right there, and he was standing, as he said. Just hit a few chords. Maybe, Brother Copeland, it's because you are so precious to me and my family. Maybe it's because I got so many folks in my church that he prayed through in our revival. Maybe. Maybe it's because I trust him, and maybe it's because he's a good preacher. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But I tend to believe that there's an element in that that says I'm not standing here to impress you tonight. I'm not here to show you how well I can play. But I'm singing for the glory of God. And when he started singing that song, my heart melted like hot butter. It was just like it ran inside me. Mercy rewrote my life and tears began to flow down my cheeks. You know what it was? The Holy Ghost was in that song. And that song was touching me. And that song was ministering to me. And David was saying, when you sing my song, don't give me a professional. Don't give me somebody that just gets up there and makes sure they got all the movements just right and the hand signals just right. Give me something that when they open their mouth, something comes out of that that says, I don't deserve to be here, but I'm going to give God my best. I am going to sing for the glory of God. That's what David was saying. He said to the chief musician, to the sons of Korah, then he picked up his pen and started to write. Sister Val, would you help me start playing the closing down music here? He said, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. I want you to hear it again. He said, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Said, when will I come and appear before him? I'm here to tell you. If we're going to have a revival, we got to see it first, and we got to be hungry for it. David wasn't hungry for that temple. He wasn't hungry for the fellowship of God's people, and that's valuable. Please don't misunderstand me there. But David said, I don't want the temple. 
I don't want the people. I want God. I want the living God. I'm tired of just going to church. I'm tired of just hearing the choir sing. There's no heart. Panthers after the water brooks. Whatever you do, don't let them begin to play my song. Don't let somebody sing this song that doesn't know what I'm talking about. My soul thirsteth for God. The living God. When will I ever come before him? I'm telling you today, if you have sight and you have hunger, God wants to give you revival. Would you stand with me right now? Just a few times in my life, I've been hunting. I really like to hunt. I don't go as much as I would like, but a few times I have gone. On a number of occasions, I have scouted the area, and I know where the deer are coming. I select my spot, and I wait. I've heard them come through the woods, walking. I've heard their footsteps coming down the path, and I was ready. My gun was ready. And just before they break in the clearing, just before they clearly come into view, and I'm ready, they sense me or smell me or hear me. And I've heard them double back through the woods, and I can hear them walking through the woods and right around the bend right where I can't see them I'll hear them splash in and get their drink I've seen them come down a hillside and me be waiting in a secluded spot and somehow the wind be just right or a flicker of movement and they'll stop and throw up their head and look at me and turn and go around and on that evening going back to camp I'd cross their tracks where they went on down to water David was saying as the heart panteth after the water brooks so panteth my soul after the yoga way to get to water as the heart panteth after the water brooks so panteth my soul after thee I may not know the latest techniques but I'm telling you I will get to him I am hungry for him I'm not hungry for this building I'm not hungry for these people and I love you dearly, but when that kind of hunger is inside of you, I'm here to tell you, God will give you revival. If there is sight, if there is hunger, revival is for the people of God. Would you lift your hands and ask God to answer the hunger of your heart?